Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of The Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis security and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, welcome back to the Allegorical Life podcast. It's always amazing to have you with us. Now, today we're talking about the difference between sanctification and exemplification. And now this comes from a post that you've put up on the Allegorical Life blog. And you're talking about how we treat people in public office, uh, our leaders, people in the public sphere, and how our thoughts and ideas and opinions of them may change over time, and whether we need to rethink uh, our approach to uh, how we treat our leaders. So perhaps Perhaps, Mark, what I might do is get you to talk first about the difference between inspiration and holiness. So to be inspired is to be in spirit um, with with someone who inspires you. So if somebody does something or says something uh, that evokes something inside of you that motivates you or inspires you, then essentially you're in spirit with them. You're, you're in a place, um, state of mind, uh, this is very esoteric, of course, state, state of mind or place that uh, you share with that person that lifts your spirit, uh, lifts your soul, incentivizes you to move in a certain direction. And probably most importantly, it feels good. Uh, if, you, if you stop and think, think about, you know, where our minds often are, they're either neutral or somewhat negative, subtly, we may not notice that, but but someone who inspires you will lift you up and lift the mind up into a different uh, way of thinking, a different way of being, and we feel the benefit of that. So we feel inspired uh, to do something about it. When we make someone holy, you, we're sort of moving more towards worship. And I think the difficulty with making someone holy is that it puts a bit of a separation between ourselves and the other person. So I've heard this said in a, in a religious context, um, you know, the holiness of our uh, religious um, symbols, uh, people, of course, uh, in history that I remember one woman saying to me years ago in, in the context of her faith that the, um, the entity that she worshipped, I won't say who it was, whether it was Buddhist or Christian or Islamic, but um, she said that... Um, that that entity that she worshipped or saw as holy was too far away. Uh, she couldn't she couldn't reach them. They were too far away. I found that a really interesting insight into, I think, what's happening on some level with faith more broadly, uh, at least for some people in the world. That that, that our, our religious icons, our religious uh, th- those those sort of spiritual beings that came before us have been so. Uh, I think sanctified or made holy to the point that a lot of people just can't access them uh, in their minds or in their hearts. Um, I think part of that is 
how institutionalized some of those religions have become, of course, uh, or how politicized uh, that's certainly going on, <coughs> excuse me, in the world. So um, to make holy, I'm not saying holiness doesn't exist and I'm not saying it's not a good thing, but what I am saying is that if it's not seen properly, uh, then it creates a gap. And um, whereas to be in spirit or to be inspired is to be in relationship at a spiritual level with somebody. I think that's the distinction, at least in my mind. Now, Mark, in terms of that connection between inspiration and holiness, what does it mean for us when an impressive leader comes into the world? So I think when an impressive leader comes in, I think they do inspire, uh, but I don't think we should make them holy. So I don't think, in other words, I don't think we should sanctify. Um, and I say that simply for this reason, that that an inspiring leader is exemplifying um, what they're capable of, of course, but also what we're capable of. So so when we're in spirit or we're inspired, um, then that person invites us to be a certain way. They're being a certain way and they're inviting us to be the same way <clears throat> or a similar way. Now, we know this because when we see their behaviour or we hear their words, uh, and I'll use, as I always do, Jacinda Ardern as a great example, um, she inspired a nation through kindness, empathy, and well-being. And she invited the nation and and many parts of the world just quietly to join her in a politics of well-being, kindness, and empathy. And um, so it's very inspiring. And I think people are very inspired by it. Um, and so she's exemplifying. So she's saying to us through her actions, uh, words, and obviously thoughts, uh, join me in this journey. And when someone exemplifies, uh, what they do is they trigger it something in our minds. So, so we recognise the behaviour or we recognise the words. If I slow the word recognise up, it's actually recognise. So we recognise something that we have seen or heard before. In other words, it's already a part of us. We have, we've had an original cognition of kindness or empathy, or compassion, or well-being. Um, so we recognise it. If we can recognise it, it gives us the opportunity to be that way again. And so what people do when they inspire is that they exemplify what's good, or right, or best, or happy, and they invite us to be the same way. When we sanctify, we tend to make holy, and then we separate and so we think to ourselves, on some level at least, I, I, either I can't do that or I can't be that way, or probably more true is that I want to see more of that. So, so when we sanctify a leader, some of us in society will place a great burden or onus of proof on them to do more, to be more that way, because that's what we want to see. And by doing that, we're projecting and we're externalising and most importantly, we're abrogating. So we're placing that burden of the need for virtue onto somebody else. We're saying, I feel good when I see kindness displayed, so I want you to do more, I want you to do more of that. Now, that's an abrogation. The, the, the mental process ought to be uh, the kindness that you show 
for which I am inspired is the kindness that I am prepared to show as well. Um, and so by doing that, we take responsibility for our own need for virtue. Um, if, if you would ask anyone a question in a, you know, probably a privileged moment, really, because so many people are under so much stress in the world at the moment, but, you know, it's, it's alleviating the stresses of life and, and humanity. And if you were to ask someone, would you want more kindness in the world? Would you want more compassion uh, or empathy or well-being as examples? I, I can't imagine a person saying no. I, I just can't. I think they would say no if they were stressed and angry and frustrated and, and so on and so forth. But I think if their mind was calm and peaceful, they would want more of those virtues. So I think we all desire them and, and we certainly get the benefit from them when they arise. But to sanctify is to abrogate, is to place the burden upon another and to wish for them to be more of a certain way so that we feel better. Um, on some level, I'm not saying that's pure. I'm not saying that's binary. But I think, I think it's, it's certainly true that that's what we do in terms of projection. The downside is that the person that we're projecting upon, on some level, if we sanctify them, will let us down uh, because, because they won't do what we want them to do or they won't do enough or they'll make a decision that we disagree with. Uh, and that's certainly happening in domestic politics in New Zealand. Um, and what we then do is we move from sanctification to demonization and then we make the person wrong so we've gone from worshipping them on some level subtly to then demonizing them and neither of those positions of sanctification or demonization are true or fair <clears throat> they're just i just don't think they are so so w when we're in spirit when we're inspired when somebody exemplifies what is good or right or best we should take their lead and be that way as well uh, in spirit um, uh, and exemplify within our own context, within our own world, within our own sphere of influence. And I think that's really what the world's most inspiring leaders have tried to do. And some people get it, but many people don't. And, and you see the, you know, those leaders become, um, well, throughout the course of human history, some put to death. Um, uh, some assassinated, uh, some assaulted, um, you know, many voted out, uh, so on and so forth. And because we got disappointed, because we expected more from them, not realising that we we're actually dis disappointed with ourselves because we could have done more ourselves. Uh, and, and I think it's a really important distinction, particularly in leadership, to get this notion of exemplification and to encourage and to foster others to be, uh, to the extent to which they're able, a similar way in the context of those virtuous thoughts, words and actions. And I think that's an inherent responsibility of leadership, not to be perceived as the hero leader, look what I'm doing on behalf of you or for you, but whatever I'm doing, I'm exemplifying what you are also capable of within your context. Listening to the Allegorical Life Podcast. Mark, when you wrote about this topic on the blog, you mentioned that uh, some leaders can make people so uncomfortable that they'll seek to harm those leaders. Now, do you think this extreme reaction is just our absolute discomfort with ourselves in this instance? Absolutely. There's no doubt that 
we often look for information that reinforces our opinion or our view of the world. So we tend to have very fixed points of view. Um, I've said this a lot in, particularly in um, policy debates and policy formulation uh, between governments at the national level and occasionally at the international level as well, actually, that, that I would often say to people, look, the only thing you have to give up here is not your money, not your resources, nor your people. The only thing you need to give up is your fixed point of view. Um, and a lot of people, when pushed into a corner, will have a very fixed point of view because often truth and knowledge, subordinate to truth, of course, but truth, when truth turns up, it can be very uncomfortable because it shatters the illusion of our wisdom, of our perceived wisdom at least. It shatters the illusion of our world and, and our, and our uh, wish to be right. Um, and when our wish to be right or our justifications for our actions or our behaviour, our thoughts or our words are shattered by truth, some people get very upset by that um, because they are so identified by what they think and they are so identified by what they believe in. And often those beliefs are distorted. So truth turns up, often espoused by leaders, significant leaders in the course of human history that some people just didn't want to hear or just didn't want to listen to. So the, the, in my mind, the three most prominent leaders were um, <clears throat> Christ, uh, Buddha and Muhammad, uh, who bought, and, we, and I think the reason they're, they're so significant is that, and I've said this before in previous podcasts, but 2,500, 2,000 and 1,500 years later, we still speak of what they said. We're still interpreting, we're still contextualising Unfortunately, we're also still fighting on some level, um, which is unhelpful, but not that they intended that, but I think it's our imperfection of understanding and a whole lot of other things that get in the way. But nonetheless, they said things at the time that were true, I think, profoundly true, that societies at that time and even now still don't want to listen to, and it does evoke violence in people. Um, there were attempts on the life of the Buddha. There were attempts on the life of Muhammad. And there was a successful attempt on the life of Christ. And, and if you move it out of the spiritual realm, even to the, to the um, human realm, um, Martin Luther King was yet another one. Uh, Gandhi was another one. There was many attempts on the life of Gandhi. Uh, Mandela was another one. Uh, also, the, the, the attempts on his life are quite, quite prominent as well. Um, so when truth turns up, it can be very uncomfortable. And generally it turns up, through extraordinary and insp inspirational leadership. And I think that the, it takes a leader of that calibre to develop great courage to speak the way they do. Um, and I think that's why Jacinda Ardern uh, is, is inspiring and I think she's impressive. Um, and look, far from perfect, I think the politics in New Zealand is showing its complexity, particularly the way the government is formed through a coalition of uh, you know, willing or less willing partners, as most politics plays out that way. Um, but she's navigating that. But so it's an imperfect world, and it's an imperfect execution of leadership. But it's still impressive, and more importantly, I think it's courageous. And I think we should take the lead from that courage and be more that way ourselves. So I think Jacinda Ardern exemplifies that. We ought not sanctify her for her own sake. I'm not saying she's not blessed. I think she probably is. But we shouldn't sanctify, but we should see her as a, as a wonderful exemplification of the capacity of the human uh, condition. 
and take that lead and do something with it. So, Mark, how do we do this? How do we become more courageous ourselves? Um, I say to people, start where you feel the, the safest and most comfortable and then get better at it and then and then push out. So for some people, that's the that's the family. Uh, it could be the team that you lead in the workplace. Could be it could be a sporting team. Uh, it could be you know your religious um, group. It, it doesn't matter really where wherever you find that personal safety and comfort um, to be uh, yourself uh, to 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 expose a vulnerability about your own ethics and and values and morality. Um, develop the skills to be this way. Um, without being offensive or judgmental or righteous or pious, because those things often get in the way the minute we start to talk about ethics. But but if we get better at it, then we can push out and push out and be more that way in a more overt and public space. And I think that's what the world's asking for. And I see many people doing this, of course, but um, there is great fear and shame in our politics, uh, at least in the West at the moment. And the first thing it will do with shaming and fear is pick up a virtue and throw it at somebody. So, so unfortunately, we've weaponized virtue in the West, in Western society, and that tends to subordinate or suppress the opportunity for people to speak to kindness, uh, or to or to compassion, or to well-being, or to empathy, because someone will pick up uh, pick up that virtue and throw it at them. Um, it's really quite sad, actually, to see it going on. But I said to someone the other day that you know some of us have to speak in defence of virtue because it's being abused, um, and and somebody needs to stand up and say, "Hang on a minute." Uh, in, in Buddhist terms, for example, uh, the virtue of compassion is seen, and it's a metaphor, of course, is seen as the most valuable jewel in the world. There is nothing more valuable in any, any sense of value than the jewel of compassion. Some people are picking that jewel up and throwing it <laughs> as a weapon at other people. And you go, if you knew how valuable that was, would you ever throw it? And, it, you know, if it, was, if it was the most valuable thing in the world, no, you'd want to keep it. You'd want to, you'd want to do something with it, but you wouldn't want to throw it. You wouldn't want to weaponize it and throw it at somebody. So, so I think um, this notion of exemplification and sanctification is fundamental. To, that we know the difference, we understand the difference. Uh, to sanctify means to demonize. When we demonize, we will weaponize. We will throw a virtue at someone and say, "What happened to kindness? What happened to well-being? Why aren't you being that way?" Uh, the minute we say that, we're not being that way. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. So the minute we evoke criticism in someone else, we've kind of stopped being the thing that we want to see. So um, I think we should, as in leadership particularly, but I think in society more broadly, just stop and catch our breath and say, what is really important here? And, you know, th those, those um, sentimentalities or those uh, intentions towards others to be kind and compassionate and so on and so forth are fundamental, should be valued. Um, and when we see them play out in leadership, uh, we should honour them and, as I keep saying, try and be that way ourselves. And, Mark, one final spontaneous question. Uh, where do you sit on the great Greta Thunberg debate? Good question, Jordan. That's a question without notice. Look, I, I, 
I admire her for her tenacity, her, her passion, her commitment. Um, and, and I do think that the world needs to get very serious about climate change or a changing climate. Uh, in my professional experience, I've seen significant changes in the climate and the resultant weather that are manifesting as we speak in northern New South Wales and Queensland in Australia in terms of severe catastrophic fire in areas never never witnessed before and at a, and at a time of year never witnessed before. I, I think the evidence is pretty clear. Um, I think the science is very strong and science will never be perfect in 100%. It's not possible, but it's overwhelmingly, uh, in my mind at least, and certainly talking to some of the world's leading scientists in Canberra, who I don't believe are politicised at all, I think they're speaking to the truth of their science, um, have convinced me that uh, it's happening and there's something that needs to be done about it. So so I'll make that point uh, to start. In terms of Greta, I think she's very vulnerable as a 16-year-old girl. She's leading a movement that she really has no idea how to do that. She's been guided, of course, by her parents and others. I, I worry a lot for her that, um, she that she carries an enormous burden on, on behalf of at least the Western world, I suspect more than the Western world. Will it rob her of her innocence? I suspect it probably has already done that. Uh, does it bade well for her future? I hope so. Uh, do I admire her? Yes, I do. Do I agree with um, a move towards more aggressive and ultimately violent activism for climate? No, I don't. And I say it simply for this reason, that the climate should be more highly regarded than having to turn to violence to defend it or aggression. And I think if we turn to aggression or violence, whether it's verbal or physical, we are completely disrespecting the very thing we're fighting for. It's, it's the climate that gives us this world. It gives us the forests, the you know, the trees, the rivers, the mountains, the coastlines, it all arises from the relationship between landscape and climate. And that's where we find our peace. That's where we find our spirituality. It's where we find love. It's where we find ourselves, really. If, if most of us will walk to a forest, to a beach, to a river, to a mountain, and find an enormous sense of peace and tranquility, which leads us to essentially who we really are. So we, we have to approach this debate with an extraordinarily, extraordinary level of intellect and a great spirituality. And if we don't do that, if we move to violence, verbal or physical, and aggression, then we're just disrespecting the very thing that we're standing up for. Now, how we navigate that, I think it's one of the biggest challenges of humanity, that how do we motivate politics, particularly politics that, that continues to deny the effects and the cause, to change its mind. Well, there are ways of doing that. There are democratic processes. Um, someone made the comment the other day that how, how significant is any government in this space anyway, that there are people, and I, I'm working with people at the moment, who are just getting on with it, uh, moving towards green energy and doing all sorts of things uh, with great regard and respect for the climate. And I suspect the power of the people sits there. And I hope that Greta Thunberg and, and the campaign that she runs will incentivise the average person to do more and to do more at the ballot box as well. 
So to, to use the democratic processes, what they're there for, and make the necessary changes so that governments do shift on public policy in a sensible and measured way um, through the very thing that we proclaim to value, which is our democracy. But anything that's anarchistic um, that moves towards civil disobedience or violence or aggression, I, I think is just dis disrespecting the very thing that we're taking a stand on. Thanks for joining us today on the Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying our podcast, you might like to add a review on iTunes and that'll help other people find us as well. Thank you and we hope to have you with us again soon.